You are listening to Season 2 of Future Ecologies. I like to begin slow just to get it going. I'm sitting on the ground in a quiet clearing in the forest. Across from me, my friend, Fern Yip, is kneeling, her fingers gripped tightly around what looks like a violin bow made out of sticks, which she's working furiously back and forth across a wooden dowel causing it to spin and drill down into a piece of cedar on the ground. Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Penelicate, Holwitsum, and other Halkomenum-speaking peoples, this is Future Ecologies, where your hosts, Adam Huggins and Mendel Skulski, explore the shape of our world through ecology, design, and sound. love to do the honors. What do I do? What are the honors? The honors are placing the coal in our beautiful little hummingbird cedar fluff nest. You just nudge it in? Yeah, just nudge it in. There it goes. Oh, there it is. Okay. I mean, all that dust is great, too. You can put that on top okay. of it. The dust can go in. Okay, yeah. dust. you start the fire you gotta be ready to, ready for it to burn sometimes or be ready to put it out <laughs> oh you look good that way though so mendel take a quick look at our podcast feed and let me know if you see a pattern uh we have 14 full-length episodes and now three of them are about fire. Of course. But in our defense, it's a huge subject. After all, to quote my friend Fern, it's at the core of what it means to be human. If we're a little obsessed with fire, I'd argue that it comes naturally. And I guess that it's actually taken us this long to wrap our heads around it. So should we tell them? Tell them what? About where we've been, what we've been up to. Cat's out of the bag now. So since our last episode on fire, we've toured the northern interior of the province of British Columbia. We've spoken to scientists, ranchers, foresters, hereditary chiefs, and the BC Wildfire Service about the future of wildfire and prescribed burning in our landscape. Last season, we talked a lot about the deep ecology of fire and about returning fire to the land for cultural and ecological purposes at the local and landscape scales. Today, we're going to zoom way out and look at how fire is transforming whole bioregions in the boreal forest of Western Canada. What actually happens when fire threatens communities? And how can we realistically manage a dizzying range of values on lands that are meant to burn? 
especially now as we exist in the context of climate change. As you may already know, 2017 and 2018 were record-breaking years in British Columbia in terms of area burned by wildfire. There were mass evacuations and, in the heat of the moment, a lot of public criticism about how the emergency response was handled. We're going to start off by meeting someone who got up close and personal with the 2018 fires. Good morning, I'm Adam. Clint. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Thanks for coming out here to talk to us. No problem. Um, your yeah. phone's in the car? Oh, yeah. Whatever you need, grab and then we'll jump in my uh, dirty truck here. And... I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll sit in the front? Yeah. yeah. Clint Lambert is a busy man. Not only is he a rancher, but also a politician. Clint serves as regional director of the Burns Lake Electoral District E with the regional district of Bulkley Nachaco. He took us all over the south side of Francois Lake, touring the post-burn landscape of the massive Verdun and Nadina fires of 2018. As we drove past stunning views of Tweedsmere Park, we saw blackened trees and patches of earth scorched down to mineral soil. To us, most of the landscape still was quite beautiful in the expanses of fireweed and other post-disturbance plants. But to a ranching and timber community like Southside, the burn was a vivid and painful memory. Clint took us into the town of Tekaisi, a short stretch of buildings, most of which are tightly sandwiched between the road and a 500-hectare lake. Okay, so the fire come right in here. I don't know how that house that we just passed didn't get burnt. Um, but the, the fire come right to the road. The people of Southside were given an evacuation notice at the beginning of August of 2018 as the fires grew. Of the roughly 1,200 people who live in the community, around 200 stayed behind. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of people that stayed, yeah. Yeah, I was one of them that stayed. So. You stayed? Why'd you stay? Um, <laughs> stayed because pretty much you have to um the government you know like uh, everybody's kind of trashing the government because of this and that and whatever but the reality of it was there was 600 fires in the province burning and there was nobody fighting the fire that was coming at us so they just didn't have you know they just didn't have the resources so we stayed and did what we could the Southsiders felt that they had been abandoned. They had gathered their equipment to help the wildfire service, but it sat unused. They had brought in dozens of volunteers, but they were reassigned to other fires. Frustrated with the response from the BC Wildfire Service, Clint and his compatriots formed an unsanctioned firefighting force, which earned the moniker the Wolf Pack. And the guy that, that has the store here, well, look at the sign right here. Look how hot it was. It burnt right up here and, and uh, you know, like that fence is burnt in half right there and the sign is scorched and their propane tank, he got back, he left and came back and the flames were right beside the propane tank. And he had, um, he had an old truck here, an old water truck, and he was able to put the flames out. But you can see he lost um, buildings, a couple of buildings and stuff here. For the wolf pack and the others who refused to evacuate, it was a grim choice. 
stay and put their lives and potentially liberty on the line, or go and wonder if they were leaving their homes and their livelihoods behind forever. If that propane tank would have gone, everything was gone. One of the major tensions at Southside was the feeling that equipment was made available by the community, but was underutilized by the wildfire service. You know, at any given time, they had all kinds of equipment here. And of course, ranchers, our equipment is old and wore out and broke down, and we're trying to keep things together. But yeah, they, they were pretty stingy on, on allowing any, any help. It took a long time to get them to come around finally. Stories like these, of vigilante firefighters, or evacuation confusion, or even the outright loss of a community, were not uncommon in the 2017 and 2018 fire seasons. After the unprecedented devastation in 2017, BC Premier John Horgan commissioned a review of the emergency response in order to make recommendations to the province. If it's burning, it doesn't know a border, it doesn't know where to stop at a boundary, and we're all invested in it. My traditional name is Shwetamo Eslat, which means committed and gets the work done. Uh, Maureen Chapman, uh, hereditary chief of Skawalth First Nation, which is out between Agassiz and Hope, part of the Stalo Nation. Chief Chapman, together with former cabinet minister George Abbott, toured British Columbia to learn directly from the communities that were impacted. The resulting 140-page report, entitled Addressing the New Normal, 21st Century Disaster Management in British Columbia, or just the Abbott Chapman Report, was released in April of 2018. It made a whopping 108 recommendations to the provincial government. But don't let that scare you off. Reading the report is easy. Producing it was not so much. I was very determined that this would be truthful and that we would give the best recommendations that we had based on everybody we talked to, not just a few. I'm not here to please government. I'm here to get the truth. And that, I think, is why Horgan chose me, because I, he knew I wasn't going to be compromised. And the report is uncompromising. There are way too many recommendations to even attempt to summarize here, so we're going to zoom in on recommendation number one. The one most important to me was number one, and that was that, that First Nations communities were involved right from the beginning. The first recommendation is to establish Indigenous peoples as true partners and leaders in emergency management by including First Nations from the beginning and at all levels of planning, decision-making, and implementation. On its face, Mendel, this recommendation doesn't seem to have anything to do really with wildfires. So why is it first? Well, for starters, there are 198 First Nations in BC, many of which are located in small, remote communities that are on the front lines of climate change and are at high risk for fire or flooding. Maureen describes her visit to the Ashcroft Indian Band in Cache Creek, BC. I don't know if you've ever been up there uh, at Ashcroft, but it, it's like the, the hills are here, and, and there was just like, this fire just went right through this tunnel, and the wind, of course, was blowing. There was no chance. I mean, if you could get out of, out of the way, that's all you could do. There was nothing that they could have even tried to save. 
it just devastated parts of their community. And the interesting thing was it burned all around. It burned houses to the ground. All of their archives were still in boxes, paper copies, and those all got destroyed for years of their community information that resonated in, in how fierce that was. It was very, very fast fire as well. That's awful. Yeah. And while some damage is inevitable during a natural disaster like this, it's clear from the report that most communities were poorly prepared for these conditions, and some real challenges emerged during the disaster response. The report includes accounts of community members stranded far from home who couldn't return for weeks or even months. Local help was offered and left unused. Out-of-province fire crews were deployed in areas that were unfamiliar to them and then shuffled around at two-week intervals. There was little clarity about where official communications were being distributed, so misinformation on social media filled the void. Many people just didn't know what to do or where to go in the event of an emergency, even if the community had an emergency plan on the books. And all of this was exacerbated by a lack of communication between First Nations communities and settler communities. The First Nations assume that all of these entities won't talk to them, and vice versa. The First Nations aren't interested in talking to us, but you don't know that. You're, there's a lot of assumptions made, I find, and once you get people to a table, I've found even really controversial topics, once you get them sitting across the room from each other and talking to each other, it dispels a lot of what their assumptions were. And that's, that's the key. Even though you think it's going to be controversial, it's better than the hearsay and it never getting resolved or going anywhere because it goes in circles forever unless you sit down and sit across from each other. I know the frustration, especially like in government, it just takes forever for the cog to turn to get changes. But I think when government asks you to go out and do some work, then they better be listening to what these recommendations are. Like, make this real because you asked, you paid for it. And I think it's important that it, it's the community voices. Since the Abbott Chapman report was released, the BC Wildfire Service has already made changes to adopt 19 of the 108 recommendations. 76 more are in progress, and the remaining 19 are being analyzed further. But for the communities that felt left behind, the memory of 2018 is not fading fast. Clint is concerned that the mistrust of government orders is smoldering into a dangerous situation. People that left, you know, obviously are, are not going to leave next time. And some of those people that have, have told me that I'm going to stay and we're not going <laughs> to, they're people that should leave. Like in Australia, they had actual, you know, you had to take certain firefighting courses to be able to stay and defend your own property. I don't see that being a bad idea. Uh, people shouldn't just be allowed to stay and fight fire if they don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, but, but who am I to tell them that they can't protect their own property? 
because I, I'd be a hypocrite because I stayed and protected my property. <laughs> Clint acknowledges that the BC Wildfire Service has its own roles and priorities that it needs to follow. Like they said, they, we, we've done everything by the book. Um, so now we have to change the rules in the book. In the past, these fires have been away from communities. And now that they're on top of communities, the forestry is going to have to come up with a different way of dealing with or fighting or, or working with the community to, to put it out. Are we going to just keep doing what we're doing and, and hope that it gets better? Or, or, do we, or do we try something different? And so, to find out what we should be doing differently, we went to one of the most outspoken forest scientists in the province. Yeah, so my name is Laurie Daniels. I am a professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia, and I run the Tree Ring Lab in the Forest and Conservation Sciences Department. As you might already know, tree rings can tell us much more than just how old a tree lived to be. And we describe it as reading between the lines. Scars embedded in tree rings can tell us stories of insect damage, windstorms, cultural modifications, and, of course, fire. Forest fires come in a whole bunch of types and sizes and severities. So a very intense forest fire that's burning from treetop to treetop, which is called a crown fire, it actually does a lot of damage to the trees and the majority of the trees are killed. But you can also have forest fires that are burning down along the surface of the ground. So they're burning the plants and the vegetation on the surface. They're burning around the trunks of the trees, but not necessarily spreading the flames up into the tops of the trees. So if the heat of that fire is intense enough, it can cause damage to the trunk of the tree without actually killing it. And so it's that heat, it damages it, and yet other parts of the tree survive. So it begins to form what we call a scar. Now, some of the trees in our interior dry forests here in British Columbia have really thick bark and they're adapted to those surface fires. And so an individual tree can survive multiple surface fires in its life. Um, we often find trees that have anywhere from 5 to 12 fire scars on them. And our record is a ponderosa pine that has over 40 fire scars embedded in a single tree. That tree lived to be over 500 years old, with surface fires regularly toasting its bark at least every eight to nine years. If any of those fires had become a crown fire, that tree would never have lived through the centuries. But in the age of industrial forestry, it's those same surface fires that have been suppressed. They're the ones that we have very, very effectively put out. So we've virtually eliminated them from the forests, which mean in absence of surface fires, all the small trees have grown in to form ladder fuels. The forests are much more dense and you've accumulated, you know, needles and leaves and branches and, and woody debris over many decades. So the fuel loads are really high. And so ironically, the places that are most fire prone in terms of weather and climate are also the places that have these really dense forests and accumulated fuels. To recap for new listeners, ladder fuels, as Lori mentioned, are exactly how they sound. It's tricky for a fire to go from the ground up to the canopy, unless, of course, it has something to climb on. First shrubs, onto young trees, and then further up branches and into the crown. Which makes intuitive sense. If you've ever built a campfire, especially if you were using a bow drill, big logs don't tend to catch sparks until there's a lot of smaller stuff already burning. 
By suppressing surface fires, we've effectively stockpiled our forests with just the right kind of kindling to grow into a crown fire. Cut block debris, standing dead beetle kill, and densely planted, highly stressed, even aged stands of, say, lodgepole pine. My concern about the fires in the last few years is they're not burning through fuels that are natural ecosystems. They're burning at high intensity through altered fuels, fuels that have been altered by fire suppression, through insect outbreaks that have exceeded their unprecedented in their size and severity, and um, are leaving behind fuels through our management, through our salvage responses, that are also in unusual. And so the fires that we're experiencing that are of such high intensity and severity, I don't think those are typical of the fires that burned historically in these landscapes. We have such a tremendous diversity of ecosystem types and associated with them the wide range of historical and contemporary fire regimes that it makes trying to come up with a solution that's one size fits all absolutely impossible. This is always the challenge with complex ecological systems. It's dangerous to draw generalizations from them. And to be honest, for us podcasters, it's this reality that keeps us up at night. But there are a few principles that apply no matter where you are. Chief among them is that proactive solutions are the best way to safeguard communities against destruction. And really, we need to be looking beyond the wildland-urban interface, beyond the two-kilometer buffer between forests and communities. We need to rethink how we manage forest lands in general. There's a choice then for us to use a technique called managed wildfire. So when fires ignite in places where they don't put homes and lives at risk, and when they're burning under fire weather conditions that are unlikely to produce a conflagration that we cannot stop, then those fires can be left to burn on the landscape. There will always be fires, a subset of fires that we have to suppress because they put lives and homes and critical infrastructure um, at risk. And so we will choose to suppress those. And those are often the areas where we also need to then be thinking about actively managing the vegetation to reduce fuel hazards and to reduce the risk of fire either igniting and spreading from those areas or spreading into those areas. So those are going to be our kind of active proactive fire management zones and where hopefully people will also take the responsibility to fire smart their homes and properties simultaneously. Beyond just allowing certain wildfires to burn, there's a need to return prescribed fire to the land where appropriate. I think that as people become better informed, they might be more accepting of prescribed burns as a type of management tool. The ecological principles that we're founding our management on are outdated. There have been entire paradigm shifts in ecological theory and in our understanding of disturbance and the role of change and environmental change and climate and the way ecosystems function within that context over the past 20 to 30 years. And yet the foundational systems the management systems, the classification systems, the, the management paradigms that we are employing are based on pre-1970s ecosystem theory. And we're living the consequences of that. Consequences that, of course, include massive carbon emissions from massive wildfires. For me, 
the role of wildfires in forested ecosystems is one of the major canaries in the carbon coal mine. Uh, carbon coal mine seems a little redundant. And on the subject of carbon, Lori told us something that we were shocked to learn. When we do our carbon accounting, and as we report both nationally and to the international community, wildfires do not count. They are not considered a source of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that we have to account for when we do our carbon budgets. But, strangely, prescribed burning is factored in. It just doesn't seem like an honest way to present the facts or incentivize corrective action. Last year, wildfire emissions tripled the combined output of human activity in BC. The report that came from the Canadian Forest Service then is if you take into account the carbon being emitted by forest fires and by insects like mountain pine beetle and defoliators like eastern and western spruce budworm, our forests in Canada have been net emitters of carbon. We have been sources of carbon as opposed to sinks since the year 2001. I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. What Laurie is saying is that Canada's boreal forests have actually released more carbon than they've taken in over the past two decades. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a huge sinking feeling. Like smashing that piggy bank that you've been saving for a rainy day and finding nothing in it but ashes. Wildfires play a major role in this dynamic, but going from a hundred years of suppressing fire in order to protect assets and then suppressing fire to prevent carbon emissions, that just isn't going to work. We needed some perspective on this, so we called up someone who works with fire in the boreal forest every day. I personally uh, have challenges with uh, discussions around changing climate and carbon sequestration because I do believe that it all depends on your temporal and spatial scale. When the discussion comes around wildland fires and prescribed fires emitting carbon, I would suggest that we don't only think about carbon emission or carbon source or carbon sink at time zero. I'm a firm believer that we need to be thinking about time since fire. And in my brain and in my schooling and my opinion and, and what I write about time since fire is not only when the flaming is happening and the combustion is happening and smoke is going into the air, but two months later, as the vegetation is starting to regrow and potentially put carbon back into the ground, and then perhaps a month later, when an animal comes along and, and um, browses and grazes on that vegetation. So that's just in a short time since fire. So when I hear people talking about changing climate and interaction with carbon sequestration, my question is often, well, what's the time scale and what's the space scale that we're discussing? Because it's not always going to be black and it's not always going to be smoking. Meet Sonia. We couldn't make it all the way up north to Fort Nelson, so she got a chair and a microphone at her local radio station and we called her up. I'm Dr. Sonia Leverkus. I have a PhD in natural resource ecology and management with a specialization in pirate herbivory and landscape ecology. Sonia's fire credentials don't end there. She has an ecological consulting firm, as well as a hands-on wildfire management, prescribed burning, and wildfire fighting company, where she serves as an ignition specialist. She's certified as a wildland fire practitioner. And besides that, she's a registered professional biologist professional agrologist, a forester in training, 
and an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta. In other words, in the world of prescribed fire, Sonia is involved at every level. I do everything from writing and developing prescribed fire burn plans to prescribed fire strategies. I also teach fire courses. I'm a certified BC Wildfire Service instructor, and I have developed a series of prescribed fire schools along with my colleagues from Oklahoma State University. And uh, our team teaches people about prescribed fire. Uh, we do a hands-on approach, so we learn in the classroom, and then we also go out into the field and do prescribed fires together. Once we had a sense of Sonia's seemingly limitless energy for practicing burning and fire advocacy, we wanted to take the temperature of prescribed fire in BC. There are many people who talk about prescribed fire, but there are very few of us who are willing, dedicated, and able to actually put fire on the land. I would say that prescribed fire is consistently brought forward in various discussions at various levels in the government, in non-government, throughout the province and the country. But I would also say there's many challenges associated with implementing prescribed fire in this province. I think that uh, one of the great challenges, and this speaks to government and the public and society as a whole is this just this lack of acceptance and understanding of the important role that not only the role that fire has on the land but that that fire is a natural process an ecological process that is very important to many different species i think that there's also one of the challenges is the lack of understanding of that critical interaction between fire and ecological disturbances so a lot of my education and uh, specialization is in pyric herbivory, and that's the fire-grazing interaction. So how fire across the landscape uh, is important for herb- different herbivores. But even more than that, having a shifting mosaic, so a, a distribution of time since fire across a broad landscape is very, very important for biodiversity. And, and that shifting mosaic is kind of like a patchwork where we see recent fire across the land and longer time since fire across the land and different animals and and different values require this varying spatial temporal distribution of fire across the land. And I think that is something that's very important for the public and, and our decision makers to understand. This idea of a shifting mosaic is exactly what we've ignored under our conventional forest management. The type of forestry we're used to could be called static management. The boundaries between woodlots, old growth management areas, and parks and recreation, they're all fixed. And we try to prevent any kind of disturbance which could interrupt our master plan. Natural forests, the forests that all wildlife evolved alongside, the forests that we need if we're going to become truly wildfire resilient, those forests have patches of trees of different ages in different densities. And not only is the forest patchy, the patches themselves vary widely in size and distribution. And, most importantly, they change. We wanted to learn more about how we might create these shifting mosaics, so we headed south, to eastern Washington. Positively tropical, by Canadian standards. I'm Paul Hesberg. I'm a forester and a research landscape ecologist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Forest Service. 
I'm a part of the Pacific Northwest Research Station. We have labs throughout Oregon, Washington, and Alaska, and I work in a lab in eastern Washington, the town of Wenatchee. Wenatchee is a beautiful town on the eastern foothills of the Cascades, surrounded by orchards. In the aftermath of major wildfires up and down the coast, there have been a bewildering number of sometimes conflicting prognoses delivered by different scientists through a not always scientifically literate media. Paul has studied fire-prone landscapes for over 40 years, and he is able to deftly situate the elements that drive them. The science is really clear that regardless of geography, the area that's burned is driven by the changing climate. So area burned annually is driven, and its increase correlates beautifully with the signature of the climate in each geographic area. The severity of fire is driven by an interaction between fuels and the climate. You need fuels for energy release, so severity has to tie to fuels. And we know that it does, but it does so in a variable way by geographic area. I think this distinction between area burned and burn severity is really useful. With climate setting the menu, it's really not a question of whether or not we'll be having fire. It's how we want that fire served. But fire severity is driven by this nexus of how the fuel commingles and interacts with the particular climate that's going on. And it's the only variable in the equation that we can actually do something about. We actually have the opportunity to manage that particular variable, and we can do it intelligently. We've already discussed some of our management practices, which are well-established and widely employed. The biggest disagreements arise when we try to decide where, when, and how they should be employed at a landscape scale. And at serious risk of redundancy, the biggest pitfall we've encountered is assuming that what works in one place will necessarily work in another. If you hear a one-size-fits-all answer, be instantly suspicious about it. That being said, we are now about to make some broad generalizations. Not generalizations, Adam. Principles. Paul brought together a consortium of scientists who are leaders in their areas to create what he calls a co-managed co-rendering of the science. We basically said, can we go through the literature together and synthesize hundreds of research articles that give us some insight on a short list of things that if we do them would move us onto solid ground? There's a lot more principles that we could write, but it's hard to keep them in RAM. So what does a short list look like, right? You know, Mendel, lately I've been really feeling like I need a RAM upgrade to keep up with everything. Yeah, I, uh... You have something there? I thought, I thought I... Oh, yeah. Check it in. Principle one. Landscapes, they're hierarchical. They're like nested Russian dolls. There's a very broad scale regional landscape and regional landscapes differ one to another. So there isn't a recipe about what hierarchies look like from one geographic area to another, but we notice that every area has them. The first principle is all about scale. Different ecological patterns and processes operate at different scales. For example, biogeoclimatic zone, subzone, and variant here in BC. Management actions should be tailored to the appropriate scale. Also, the scales are connected by both bottom-up and top-down forces. 
What we do at one scale will have ripple effects throughout the system. If you want to restore forests in any place, you have to be thinking about at least three levels. What we do at one level influences pattern and process at the next level. Principle two. The second principle is that if we want to know how to tailor patterns back to the landscape, what is a simple template that we can use? Well, it's topography. If you look at a map of topography of north and south aspects, ridge tops and valley bottoms, when I superimpose that on a terrain model, I can literally see in exquisite detail how topography and the map of soils and the map of land surface forms influenced the productivity and the growth of forest, the kind of forest, and the fire regime of forest. We got into an extended conversation with Paul about this principle, because while topography can provide an excellent template to guide restoration, its effects vary from region to region. Suffice it to say that in Paul's region, south-facing slopes mean open, low-density forest and frequent fires, while north-facing slopes feature denser forests and less frequent, higher-intensity fires. That might be true where you live, or it might not. The template itself will change, but the principle of topography as a template is a constant. Principle 3 The third principle is that wildfire is not only an essential process, but it's the engine of the system. You not only can't take it out, it's really important and super clever to keep it in the system, but in the right way. And what drives wildfire, that's patterns of non-forest and how they interact with forest successional patterns over space and time. So that's the fuel that drives the engine. The third principle states that disturbance and succession drive ecosystem change. If disturbance, in this case wildfire, is the engine, and forest landscapes in various stages of succession are the fuel, then we should focus on either allowing wildfire to restore healthy successional patterns or to restore them ourselves. Right now, humans are a, if not the, primary driver of ecosystem change, and something of a drunk driver at that. To step out of that role, we need to work with and not against natural disturbances. Principle four. The fourth principle is that uh, wildfires over space and time produce severity in what we call patch size distributions. And from studying lots of fires, we found that most of the historical fires were small to medium size. So what's the role of the small fire? Well, it's to re-complexify the landscape burned by large fires. And that's what we see. Small and medium-sized fires historically blocked fire flow under all but the most extreme fire weather. And under the most extreme weather, the large fires occurred and they reduced complexity. Inside of a large fire, it's not all high severity in the native regime. It's this incredibly complicated patchwork of low mixed and high severity fire, but it was a big event. It was varied because the other fires were constantly reducing fuel, so you didn't get one severity signature out of those big events. You got this incredible mix. So we don't manage the frequency of the large patches. We manage the frequency of the small to medium-sized patches. They manage the frequency of the larger patches. You could spend hours talking with Paul about patch size distributions, and we literally did. The main takeaway from the fourth principle 
is that the relative proportion and distribution of differently sized forest patches is an emergent property of a given fire regime. Our problems start when we cause landscapes to deviate from that pattern, so learning to recognize a region's appropriate patch size distribution is key. Principle 5 The fifth principle is that logging took the large and the old trees and they were climate and wildfire tolerant and they were a phenomenal genetic legacy. If they survive tremendously well, they're also a great way to store genes, right? So keep what you have and make more of them. And these are in the fire tolerant species. Principle five, keep those big trees alive. In open forests, older trees can survive low intensity fires and provide an essential seed source for regeneration. In the artificially dense forests created by fire suppression, older trees sometimes need our help to clear accumulated woody debris and fire ladders that put them at risk. Either way, respect your elders. And leave room for alders. That's principle five and three quarters on us. Principle six. Sixth principle, it's one of my favorites. Patches are really landscapes unto themselves. They're the finest scale landscape in our Russian doll analogy. Trees naturally regenerate in clumps and gaps. And as it turns out, that's highly influential to creating very fine-scale habitats for species that live in a small area. But it also changes the way fire behaves at that finest scale. And how it behaves at that finer scale influences how a fire can actually move through a local landscape. So how we manage the clumpiness of trees and the gap sizes is important to building a local landscape that's high-functioning. The key to understanding Principle 6 is that even at a small scale, forest patches aren't homogenous. They consist of clumps of trees of different ages, with small or large gaps in between. If you've ever walked in a forest that wasn't planted by people, you understand this intuitively. But it's easy to forget to preserve this fine-scale heterogeneity when you're restoring landscape at scale. Just remember. Clumps and gaps, baby. Principle seven. The seventh principle, it's actually not that hard. It's really intuitive. When European settlers crossed into the West, we sliced and diced the ecological landscape into land ownership lines. That was the ethos in those days. What does that mean if we want to get good ecological functioning? We actually have to work together across ownerships to be able to restore ecological conditions that make sense for all of us. And what's interesting, we're learning through our collaboratives is that people want to work together. They have wanted for decades to work together. And so when we do, it's not easy. We have different goals, we have different values, but we enter into a discussion about how we compromise, how we get what we need and give the landscape what it needs. And through jointly looking at the data about what the landscape is, how it changed, and what we need, we start to understand what our piece of the puzzle is, what each of us need to do. The seventh principle represents perhaps the greatest challenge and the greatest opportunity we face in this paradigm shift we've been discussing. And it brings us right back to where we started, to partnerships. The existing gridlock of property lines and politics can feel like a concrete reality. But these are human conventions and are, therefore, subject to change. So the collaborative environment is 
people coming together, saying what they want, saying what they value, developing a common language for understanding the landscape, for talking to each other, and then one by one putting aside old mistrust. I would say most of what drives difficulties between some managers and NGOs who patently disagree with them is deep veins of mistrust, broken relationships, broken promises, and healing those is a deeply personal and incredibly important social need. And it has to happen before you can bring people together, develop common solutions, and go forward. And what that means is people have got to put aside their old hurts and their mistrust and develop a common way forward, common ownership in what the plan is. But even once we gather around the table, it's becoming easier with our newfound powers to imagine that we can just sit down, look at some maps, and decide which patches should go where and how the landscape should look in two and three dimensions. But it's critical that we remember the fourth dimension, time. Maps lie. Maps that come out of sophisticated GISs lie. They persuade us that what we just mapped can be permanent, and there is no permanence. The ideas that come out of the seven principles are that what you want to do is generate the patterns and the characteristics of landscapes that are constantly being nudged and thrown around. And they're thrown around differently when you're working with the operating rules of that particular system. Adopting the seven principles is not essentially raising the level of your craft so now you're perfect at engineering the landscape. It's actually saying, we think the landscape wants to work in this way, get somewhere within the wobble of that system, and then allow wildfires and climate to continually nudge it. We'd like to take you on one last stop. We're headed to Alkali Lake, to the Esketum First Nation, a community that is diving confidently back into the wobble. The issues of community autonomy and of First Nations leadership and shifting mosaics that we've been discussing, the community of Alkali Lake is bringing it all together. Alkali Lake is about an hour south of Williams Lake. Or longer if you happen to be taking the unpaved road real easy on your compact rental car. And as you're driving, all of a sudden, after the crest of a hill, the road opens into a stunning valley, and the landscape changes completely. The sculpted hills were green from this unusually rainy summer. Trees pepper the valley walls, but as we learned, they've only appeared in the age of fire suppression. This landscape change occurs because as you enter Alkali Lake, you're entering one of the little fingers of the northernmost extent of the Bunchgrass Biogeoclimatic Zone, one of the rarest biogeoclimatic zones in BC, actually covering less than 1% of the province, but home to a stunning array of biodiversity. Also, very fire-prone ecosystem. It was a drizzly gray morning, and we arrived in what first looked like a quaint Old West-style one-horse town, only then to find a whole team of horses keeping dry under the roof of the gas station, and a brand new biomass thermal plant running on wood chips. On the hillside nearest the town, not more than 100 meters from the closest building, a burn pile was already well underway, and the sound of chainsaws echoed from the trees. We pulled up to the ARM head offices, 
That's Alkali Lake Resource Management, where we met Francis Johnson. Yeah, my traditional name is Atlejomenesque, and it's a, a Sequentmuk name that I've been given, and, and I'm also a hereditary chief, uh, one of three in the community, and I'm also a professional forester. I work with Alkali Resource Management here in strategic planning. The fact that Francis holds this role of hereditary chief is a sign of the times, of the declaration of the rights and title of the Eskadamic First Nation and the recent revival of traditional governance. Yeah, in May 8th in 2017, after the uh, Chilcotin case victory, you know, we thought that a group of us would get together and work on the hunting piece. We thought we were just picking off a little piece of it, but it turned out it, you know, to manage the the deer you had to manage the grass you had to manage the water and then it turned into managing the land so we we came up with uh reinstating our our traditional governance so it's called and it means looking after the land of the white earth people we've learned so much about our, our culture language and yeah it's all coming back really nicely Eskedem first nation is matriarchal like all sane societies a council of grandmothers basically runs the show. And that council appoints the chiefs, who represent the family groups, as well as a series of expert headmen, each with a different role and responsibility. There's a different headman to manage fishing, berries, ceremony, and of course, fire. All of the important things in life. A headman uses both a spiritual connection with the land and the expertise gained by the natural science of observation to administer his duty. The new fire headman is Darren Stanislaus, he and Francis both serve a dual role as part of their traditional governance as well as managing the forestry of Arm. As a timber-savvy community, the people of Alkali Lake are passionate about fire, and they're leading the way in re-establishing its use as a management technique. And in his role of planning when and how to intervene with the ecosystem, Francis has a clear mandate. As a First Nations people, we, we feel we have the right and we're, we're tasked with managing the land for seven generations in the future. And, you know, every decision we make, we have to keep that in mind. It has to be sustainable for all our kids. We're just boring the land for from our children. Not only their children, but all the descendants they'll never get to meet. It's a perspective that forces you to consider your cumulative long-term impacts. And we're lucky that memory of local burning still lives on. Eskedem community members were burning their grasslands as late as the 1950s. Since those times, stories of the qualitative changes to the ecosystem are both a warning of how bad things have become and a guide for the path ahead. Our elders say that they used to be able to ride horseback freely and gallop through stands. You know, now they're so ingrown that you can't chase horses in the area anymore. Um, so that's definitely an indicator that, you know, we've, we've listened to our elders where, you know, 100 years ago there were no trees in this valley because of frequent fire. It was maintained every year or two for grass burning. And now that practice is finally coming back. Traditionally on reserve, we do burn yearly on this main village to protect uh, the, the houses, um, we are a fire smart community, so that is some of the work that we do to maintain our safe environment. They burn the grass right up to the houses. That is, of course, with equipment and personnel standing by. 
just through the years of burning, we've we've we think we've got it down where we feel safe, and and we'd rather have it burn in the spring than in the peak of summer. But Francis is concerned about the current state of old growth management areas. These would have been traditionally burned on a 13 to 17 year interval to keep the understory clear. But with today, with the amount of fuel built up there in the forest, it's it's not safe to burn traditionally. So we definitely have to, to have a knowledge of Western science and, and fire intensity. And we're still learning how to burn in an understory um, Grasslands, we've seen very intense fires that have burned in old growth management areas that we were trying to protect old growth, but we're not protecting them if we don't manage them. I would classify the old growth management stands as, you know, a bomb waiting to go off. Like the amount of dead pine ladder fields that we have in these old growth management areas just provides wicks for fire to to go into the crowns, and, and that's where we lose old-growth forests is when they crown out. Francis pointed out that their hands are tied when it comes to old-growth management areas. They can't enter the area with machinery, with the exception of dealing with pine beetle infestations. But on the other hand, any fuel treatment they do at scale should be able to pay for itself, likely by harvesting the smaller trees. Which makes this seem like an especially delicate situation. We all want these old growth stands to continue doing their work as seed banks and wildlife refugia. What happens if we open the door to this protected habitat? Inevitably, doing this sort of work means heavy machinery, which will have some impact. But doing nothing is potentially dooming them all the same. Either way, once they're gone, they're gone. In the past, foresters have claimed that their efforts would neatly mimic the fire that they excluded. But the differences between fire and logging are actually obvious. From what I've seen with um, clear-cut pine logging, it's totally different than putting fire on the land. Like, you don't get that flush of nutrients that are released. And also, it doesn't release a lot of the seeds that are in the soils. And, you know, on, on fires in the area here, we've seen seed that have come up. It's haven't been seen in there for a hundred years so the soils are adapted all the species that we have in the area are adapted to fire and to me it feels like it wants to burn but we're not allowing it to burn i think without fire on the land like it's very difficult to emulate that mechanically with logging so i think to me Fire is definitely one of the key things that we have to do to return to that mosaic, creating that mosaic and resilient forest is is gotta have fire in it. And then, just like with Clint in Southside, we hopped in a truck and got taken on a tour of the local burns. Except this time, the burns we saw weren't from wildfire. We drove up the hill beside the arm office and stopped by a pile of branches, burning happily. Yeah, so the prescription is about nine nine feet up. We're pruning and we are piling and burning. So, and also we have um, spacing for the stand. Uh, just when we get on top, you'll see it. At, but this is directly adjacent to the village, which is a little bit higher risk. So we got funding for from the government to treat this area. Right. Um, Would you broadcast burn here? 
yeah that's the thinking we're gonna in the future maybe a year or two burn from the grassland up into these forests to try and emulate like a natural transition zone from the grassland into the forest right on yeah they kind of get some funding to do the thinning this year and then like in future years you can yeah. safely start to burn up into these areas yeah this was all part of a manual fuel mitigation project funded by the strategic wildfire prevention initiative or swipey crewed by students and developed in collaboration with the wildfire service francis took us a little deeper into the hillside behind the village to a plateau where the forest had previously been manually cleared so this is traditionally what a fuel break is going to look like. Notice the spacing. Eight meters is what we're looking for. Six between the crowns. We were probably the first community in this in the caribou that did this. And we had to push it hard. They had to work hard to get approval because this fire break is on crown land. But it's a stone's throw from the town. And it's clearly a critical element of their defensible space. The Douglas firs were widely spaced, with very few shrubs in the understory, and no branches lower than nine meters. A galloping horse would have no problem running through these woods. And all of the wildflowers and shrub regeneration? Turns out, fuel breaks can be really beautiful. It's true. After that, he took us further down the valley, towards where the creek joins the Fraser River. We pulled off behind a ridge, and stepped out to explore the site of Francis's most recent broadcast burn. So, this was burnt in the spring, in this valley. Um, it was time of year, it was the burning conditions we thought were too, not the greatest. It was a little too cold. We weren't getting what we wanted to in the burn, but we did it anyways. And uh, quite honestly, we found we were getting about um, pretty good mortality with uh, the juvenile trees that were coming in, so we probably got 50% mortality in a burn that we thought wasn't hot enough. But we found we were, our objectives were made. In the battle against encroaching trees, surprisingly little heat is actually necessary. Just girdling the stem with fire seemed to be enough. As it happened, Sonia and her colleague John Weir were visiting Alkali Lake to exchange knowledge with the Skedum firekeepers and observe this particular burn. Uh, so this is part of the burn area, so I really want to yeah. take out. So this middle piece right here was burnt this spring, and it was really cool because I hadn't been part of a spring burn where the grass was green. But John and, uh, and Sonia weren't too concerned about the green grass and, and I really learned why because it didn't burn it was just snap crackling and popping and it wasn't burning it would just burn a little bit and it would stop so all the dead grass burned like it would follow it all around it would leave patches of green grass so it was really cool and it burned right up to the fall burn and it stopped this landscape was just incredible there were all sorts of interesting wildflowers and plants that I had never seen before. I actually left Mendel and Francis to talk and was not to be found for the next half an hour, just with my nose in the dirt. The line between the fall burn and the subsequent spring burn was as clear as day. A prescribed fire like this one is a beautiful thing, but it's thanks to careful planning that Francis's efforts 
don't result in an overachievement. If the temperatures are too hot, the wind too high, the humidity down, or the fuel load miscalculated, a prescribed burn could spark the disaster that it's designed to prevent. Burn plans are detailed, technical outlines. And in order to proceed, they need sign-off from the burn planner, a range agrologist, or a professional biologist, the wildfire service, and the land manager. The land manager's job is to negotiate the needs of the different and sometimes competing land values, and, importantly, they answer to the residents of their jurisdiction. As we were making this episode, we learned that up until 1991, broadcast burning was actually a common practice in the forestry industry. That is, until open burning smoke regulations made it too difficult to proceed without public outcry. It was widely abandoned, and now, mostly forgotten. But, as we hear time and time again, there really isn't a no-smoke option anymore. It can be controlled, known in advance, and predictable, or it can blacken the sky for weeks. Prescribed burning may be the most effective tool we have to deal with our fuel loads at scale, reduce the risk of smoke in the summer, and disaster in our communities. Everyone we spoke with recognized the need for change. Everyone feels that what we're currently doing isn't working. But each of us has our own allegiances, needs, or personal interests that sway what we think needs to be done. The only way forward is to break down silos and recognize what we all share, common ground. So what are you gonna do? We'll continue to burn it and let nature take its course. I think let the fire shape the landscape. And hey, don't forget, fires come with perks. There's some berry bushes up in here, so I've been wanting to check this area out anyways. So, because we want to see what the berries are doing. I'm also very interested in what the berries are doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. This episode of Future Ecologies was produced by me, Mendel Skolsky. And me, Adam Huggins. This was a condensed version of a two-part series on wildfire resiliency that we made for the Bulkley Valley Research Center. We had to cut a lot of information and some really great speakers to make this version work. If you have an appetite for more, head over to futureecologies.net slash BVRC and listen to the whole thing. In this episode, you heard Clint Lambert, Chief Maureen Chapman, Dr. Lori Daniels, Dr. Sonia Leverkus, Dr. Paul Hesberg, and Chief Francis Johnson. Music in this episode was produced by Valsi, Lou Krokuda, Spencer W. Stewart, Sergei Rachmaninoff, Kat Kandu, Jonathan Shirk, Ben Hamilton, K-Maths, and Sunfish Moonlight. Our thanks go out to everyone at the Bulkley Valley Research Center. Thank you, Leanne Fenwick, Sheena Briggs, Don Hansen, and a special shout out to Navarana Smith for making all of this possible. Thanks to Frank Varga and the Burns Lake Community Forest, Ken Johnson at 102.3 The Bear, Cassie Allen, and our new associate producer, Simone Miller. A sincere thank you to the village of Burns Lake, the regional district of Bulkley Nachaco, and the Bulkley Valley Credit Union for their generous support of this project, and to Fern Yip for teaching me how to make fire with a bow drill. We don't like ads, and you probably don't either. 
We keep this show ad-free by offering our podcasting services to nonprofits like the BVRC. If your organization has an ecological message that needs our loving audio attention, please get in touch at our website, futureecologies.net. If you'd like to support the show and get access to a bonus monthly mini episode, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash futureecologies. Oh, oh, that was the best Saskatoon berry I've ever had. That was so good. <laughs> <laughs>